Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Our text this morning is 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. And so again, I invite you to be finding that. I know you've got a Bible there in front of you. So be finding the book of 1 John, and we are in chapter 3 this morning. I love you so much, I don't want to be around you. And that's a statement that we would not have made some time ago. A statement that comes across as against conventional wisdom and teaching. We've always heard that true love delights in being with the object of that love. For example, those who truly love God want to be in His presence. It is not a duty, it is not a discipline, though we sometimes use that term. It is a delight. We want to be with those we love. Spouses want to be with one another. Parents want to be with their kids. Grandparents certainly want to be with their grandkids as much as as possible. And as we've said, even during this study of 1 John, that those whom we love means we want to be with them. And that applies to the church as well. For example, we want to be with fellow believers within the body of Christ, serving alongside them and worshiping with them. And in every case that we've discussed in this letter, we've seen that where there is not this desire, the validity of the professed love is in question. That is, if we do not have a desire to spend time with God, then there is a question about whether or not we really love Him. And yet now we are repeatedly hearing that one of the arguments for us not having church in person is that we love our neighbors. If we truly love them, then we will not gather together, it is said, because we value their health and their life above, at least temporarily, our desire to get together for worship. And so we are temporarily closed down for the sake of loving others, hoping that this will communicate in some way our concern for them, so that when this is behind us, we might have opportunities to share the gospel with them. Open doors because they've seen our love. Again, the same could be said for those within the body of Christ. That is, we do not wish at this time to gather together because we don't want to unknowingly transmit the virus from one person to another within the church. And we've seen this happen. You've read the stories of churches where this has indeed occurred. So this is yet another indication that we do indeed live in strange and unprecedented times. That loving others, in this case, means staying away from them, keeping our distance. And it's another indication that our expressions of love can take many different forms depending upon the culture and our context. And so this morning, I want to share with you a message of love. You say, well, that certainly sounds better and more encouraging than the title and the topic that I dealt with last week. 
Yes, you say, that is exactly what we need to hear. We need in these times to be reminded of God's love for us. With all of the uncertainty and all of the anxiety that is going around in these times of physical and financial crisis, what better thing to be reminded of than God's love for us? That nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even this virus that we cannot see, though its effects are evident to all of us. And while all of that is true, that is not my message this morning. My message is not about God's love for you. In fact, we've already done that. You've got your Bibles open. Look back with me real quickly at chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us or bestowed upon us. If you'll recall when we looked at that particular part of 1 John, we talked about gazing or basking in the love of God. And that does indeed form the foundation for what we are going to look at this morning and cannot be divorced from what we are talking about, but it is not our current focus. When I say today that I'm bringing you a message of love, you are that message. We are talking about how you and I as believers are to love others. Yes, we know that the Bible tells us that we are to love even our enemies. We know that the Bible tells us that we are to love those who even persecute us. And certainly we know that we are to love those who do not know Christ. But all of that is not our focus today either. Our focus today is more specific. Our focus today is the love that we are to have within the body of Christ for our fellow believers. Now you know that John has been outlining a series of tests. These tests are designed to differentiate, to distinguish between those who are genuinely saved and those who are only professing believers. Some of these tests have been doctrinal in nature. That is, what do you believe about Christ? But most of them have been practical. And in each case, there has been a comparison or a contrast. John is very fond of using this technique. So that last week, we looked at what I called a DNA test. And we said that all of us have one of two heritages. That is, we either have a diabolical heritage or a divine one depending on who our Father is. Today, our contrast is between hate and love, two bitter enemies that cannot coexist. So again, look with me at 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, as we talk about a message of love. For this is the message, John writes, that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love his brother abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, 
that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. A message of love, and I want to begin by saying that there is an encouragement to love that we find there in the very first verse of this section, verse 11. This is the message that we are to love one another. Now, I wanted to call this first point a command to love, but frankly, I went with the word encouragement because all of my other points are going to start with E, and in order to keep the alliteration, I had to find an E word here. Plus, it's really not, technically speaking, this is not in the command form in this text, though, of course, we know that we are commanded to love others elsewhere in Scripture. And we're going to see that even though I'm using the word encouragement, we might say it's a very strong encouragement, and if you choose not to follow it, you are going to have some serious consequences. Now, the fact that the Bible calls on us to love others is not new or debated. This is something John says that we have heard from the beginning, both his audience and us. This is a message that we have heard from the very first time that we heard the gospel message, however long that's been for you, however many years ago it was when you first heard the message of God's gospel, it came with the message of love. But just because it is not a new message and it is something that we've heard repeatedly does not mean that it is easy to practice. Loving others is hard, sometimes because we don't feel like loving others. Sometimes it's hard because others do not reciprocate. That is, they do not love us in return. In fact, they may do the very opposite. They may hate us in return. They may oppress us or persecute us in return. Sometimes it is hard because it is something that must be done consistently. You will remember last week we made mention of the fact that these verbs were present tense. Keep on sinning or keep on living a righteous life. And the same is true here. Loving others within the body of Christ is something that is done not occasionally, not as an option. It is something that is done consistently. It is to be the practice of our lives an ongoing act, so much so that Jesus Himself said, this is the definitive characteristic of what it means to be a follower of His. You know the verse, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love one for another. I regularly hear testimonies from church members that I visit. Of course, I'm not visiting any now, but when I did visit them, I would hear testimonies from them during the midst of financial or physical issues or crises where they would invariably say to me how good the church has been to them, how helpful people have been, how they've reached out to intercede for them and help them in their time of trouble. And more times than not, their testimony of how the church has responded usually ends with something like this. I don't know how people who do not have a church family make it through times like this. And certainly we ought to be asking that question now in the midst of these days. 
when many people are shut in and don't have much contact, often producing loneliness and maybe even depressing depression. And while we are certainly susceptible to those same mood swings and those same anxieties, we within the family of God, we within the church, can and do reach out to one another, and we realize that others do the same for us. This is part of what a church is all about. So since this is not a new message, nor is it a debated one, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I'm going to move on to our next few points. But just know there is an encouragement, though I want to say command, there is an encouragement to love. But not only is there an encouragement to love, we also notice that there is an exclusion to love. That is, if you don't like the first option, you say, well, I don't know that I want to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, John gives us another option. It's not a good option. It's not an option that you ought to choose. I'm simply acknowledging that there is another option. But I'm warning you that there are consequences if you choose this other option. For the first and only time in this letter, John uses a personal name. Other than God or Jesus, he never uses another personal name. And this is also the first time and only time in this letter that John is going to make a direct reference to the Old Testament. And so the story here, by way of a negative example, is the reference to Genesis chapter 4, the first murder in history, where Cain murders his brother Abel. Now, you don't believe in the sinfulness of humanity? You don't believe that mankind has a problem? Well, I remind you that we are only in the fourth chapter, the first verse, and yet we are here with the first murder, where hatred and jealousy has boiled over into murder, and this within an immediate family between brothers. Cain and Abel had both brought offerings to God. Abel, who was a keeper of animals, brought an animal sacrifice to God. Cain, who was more of a gardener, brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. And if you read the story, the Bible tells us that God had regard for Abel's offering, but not for Cain's. Now there has been considerable theological debate as to why this is the case. What was the difference in their offerings so that God accepted one and did not accept the other? And we could take some time to talk about that, but it is not really the intent of what we are doing today. We do know that Cain became angry, and God asked him what he was so angry about. And so God said to him, if you do well, you will be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. And we know the writer of Hebrews states, By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. So while we might want to debate the details, the gist of it is clear enough, and the gist of it is that Cain had an opportunity to please God, but chose the path of sin instead. Abel was living a life of faith, whereas Cain was not. And as a result, their lives took on vastly different courses. These two brothers would have been great examples for what we talked about last week as well. That is, Cain was practicing sin. 
He was living a life of sin and able a life of righteousness. And so the end result was that rather than loving his brother, Cain's hatred and jealousy got the best of him, and it progressed all the way to murder. Now, I know what you would say. I would never resort to that. I acknowledge that I do get mad at people from time to time. I do acknowledge that I have hatred occasionally and maybe even jealousy even of others within the body of Christ, but that would never rise to the level of murder. And I certainly hope that is true of everyone who is listening. But both John here and Jesus elsewhere makes the case that hatred and murder are more closely akin to one another than we normally admit. While we do have, and rightfully so, a very harsh view of murder, we so oftentimes go much softer on hating someone else. After all, we conclude that they likely deserve our hatred. But notice verse 15. John says here that hatred is, in essence, equivalent to murder. And again, this is merely an echo of what Jesus said. I remind you of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus too likened being angry with our brothers to the sin of murder. Because Jesus is always not just concerned about the external actions, He is always concerned about the internal heart and motives that bring about these actions. So while we might have enough discipline to not actually pull the trigger, hatred in our heart toward others is, biblically speaking, just as serious. Now, before we move on, I do want to comment more specifically on verse 15. Because here is another example where, if we're not careful, we could pull a verse out of the Scriptures and make it say what it was never meant to say. Does verse 15 mean that anyone who has committed murder has no chance of salvation? That murder is, in essence, the unpardonable sin. We do know that many prisoners who are locked up for murder often find God in their cell and profess faith in Christ. And yes, we are sometimes skeptical about these professions, but does this verse mean that there is no chance that no murderer could ever find forgiveness in Christ? Now, part of the answer to that will become clearer as we move on to our other points. But for now, just know that if that is the right interpretation, then we are all in serious trouble. Because again, John makes the equivalence here. Hatred is equivalent to murder. Plus, there are several prominent biblical characters who do in fact have physical murder on their resume. Think of David or Paul, just to name a few. So although it is not our main point, I do want you to know that there can be forgiveness through Christ for both physical murder and hatred toward others in our heart. The bottom line here is that there is an exclusion. There is the encouragement to love, and you say, well, I don't know that I like that. Well, you can take the exclusion to love, and that is you can follow the path of Cain. But that is certainly not what John is recommending. In fact, he says very clearly in verse 12, do not be like Cain. Well, the third thing I want you to notice is the evidence of love. What does following the encouragement to love one another in the body of Christ say about us? 
And again, this is the heart of much, much of what John is saying. How we live our lives says much about what is in our hearts. Again, not that we become who we are by what we do. We do not earn our salvation by loving others. But our love for others gives evidence of who we are. We love others, especially within the body of Christ, out of gratitude for how much God loves us. Notice again verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. Loving others doesn't just give us evidence that we are nice people. This is not just, well, maybe we have mercy and therefore we love others. It is much more serious than that. Loving others is an indicator of genuine salvation. John puts it in terms of the transformation from death to life. Spiritually speaking, of course, which means that the stakes are much higher than you might have thought. Now, if you look back to our concluding verse from last week, verse 10, it said there in the negative, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That is, they have a, a diabolical heritage. And that is a foreshadowing of all that we are looking at this morning. Where there is no love, there is no transformation from death to life, which means you abide still in death. Now again, I know that I keep emphasizing this, but it is so crucial. Loving others does not make you saved. But it is one evidence that John is giving us in this letter that we in fact are saved. So sometimes people ask, how can I know for sure that I know God? And John answers here in part, well, do you love the brothers and sisters within the family of God? We know in our court system that there must be considerable evidence to convict someone of murder. Something needs to tie them to the crime scene. Something needs to tie them to the victim. Hopefully there is some DNA evidence to bring about a conviction, and an eyewitness or two would be great as well. In a similar way, though certainly not a perfect comparison, there should be some spiritual evidence that you and I do indeed belong to Christ. And that in large measure is what John keeps showing us in various ways. And here is yet another one of those ways. Loving our brothers and sisters within the body of Christ is evidence of our relationship with Christ. Which means the opposite is also true. If we do not have love, there is no life. Verse 14, you still abide in death. Well, since love is one of those words or perhaps concepts that is easy to talk about and even easy to profess, and yet it is sometimes hard to quantify, maybe we need more. In other words, given the choice between love and hate, I dare say that all of you would say, yes, I love. I mean, if this is a measure, if this is an evidence of whether or not I'm a genuine believer, then most of us would say, generally speaking, if I had to weigh things in a balance, I would love people more so than the opposite. Now, granted, we do struggle with a few people here and there, 
But even then, we know we're supposed to love them, and we try, and when we don't succeed, we struggle with ourselves over the fact that we don't love them like we should. And so we might be a little bit confused about what love means. How do we measure it? And so you might say what we really need is an example of love. Something that shows us in concrete terms what kind of love John is talking about. If we're trying to give evidence of whether or not we know Christ, what is an example of this love? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 16. By this we know love. Okay, he's going to give us that example. And what is the example? That he, obviously referring to Jesus, laid down his life for us. The example of love is none other than the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf as sinners. That is, He who knew no sin became sin for us. He died in our place. Now again, you know that this is Palm Sunday. The Sunday prior to Easter that celebrates the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And that's why I read that passage from Matthew 21 earlier in our service. Now it's also called Holy Week. That is, Palm Sunday is the beginning of what we call Holy Week. And this will be unlike any other Holy Week that any of us have ever experienced. There are various traditions for Holy Week. Sometimes people gather on Thursday nights of this week and they partake of the Lord's Supper or Communion to commemorate the Passover meal that Jesus shared with His disciples during His Passion Week. Others gather on Friday, Good Friday, to remember the crucifixion and the sacrifice that was made, hoping then to prepare themselves for Easter Sunday. But as you know, there will be very few of these gatherings this week, and those who do gather like this will be doing so against the advice of governmental leaders. But that does not mean that we can't focus on the passion of Christ and what it means for our lives. And so I want to encourage you this week to take some time. You have plenty of it now. Take some time. Perhaps take one of the gospel narratives and read through it. The last portion of it, the Passion Week of Christ. Read through those events and ponder what they mean. John says that Jesus laid down His life for us. That speaks of the voluntary nature of His death. No one took it from Him. Jesus Himself said that. But He willingly gave Himself on our behalf. And this speaks of how love motivated that action. His example, His death, also speaks to the need that we have and the desperate, desperate situation that we found ourselves in. You see, dying for someone else is only the greatest example of love if that person is in danger. For example, I used to fish some by myself when I was in high school. There was a family at our church who owned a house at the lake, and they were nice enough to let me go out there after school virtually whenever I wanted to and fish off their dock. I enjoyed catching fish, but I also enjoyed being out there by myself, enjoying the sunny days and the tranquility that a lake offers. I guess to paraphrase Barbara Mandrell, I was a social distancer before social distancing was cool. 
And so I enjoyed being out there by myself. Anyway, suppose, suppose I'm out there one day fishing on the dock all by myself when I'm interrupted by a friend of mine who comes frantically running down the bank and onto the dock screaming that he is going to save me. And he does. He jumps in the water trying to save me from drowning. I stand there in amazement on the dock as he flails around for a little while. Eventually he loses his strength and energy and he himself dies from drowning in the lake. Now is that sacrificial love? Of course not. That's idiotic love, if it's love at all, because I wasn't in danger. I wasn't drowning. And so for someone to try to save someone who is not in danger is not an example of love. And so the sacrifice of Christ, the example that John says here, reminds us that we in fact were drowning. We were in a desperate situation, unable to save ourselves. And so His death on Calvary is the greatest example of love because we were in danger. You were in danger. All of us, by sin, are separated from God and are in danger then of an eternity apart from God. And therefore, there is no greater example of the one who had no sin to die for, who died in our place. Now, of course, the point of an example is not just to observe it, though, of course, we do want to do that this week. The point of an example, by the very nature of the term, is that we are to follow it. And so that's exactly what John tells us to do. Even as he laid down his life for us, that same verse goes on to say, we are to lay down our lives for the brothers. We are to lovingly sacrifice for others just as Jesus did for us. And now this is where we would boldly proclaim that we are indeed willing to die for someone else, a claim whose proof is likely never to be tested. I mean, I could stand here in this virtually empty sanctuary and say that I love this church enough that I would die for her, or that I love the members of this body enough that I would die for them, knowing full well that something that drastic is not ever likely to be necessary. And so the fact is that while I have an example of love in the sacrifice and death of Christ, and I know that it is an example that I am supposed to follow, and I profess to do that, yet practically speaking, I've done very little, if anything, other than to profess my willingness to make the ultimate sacrifice. And so we have to move forward then to our last point for an answer. And that last point is the effort of love. In other words, how do we, practically speaking, practice or pronounce this message of love? You remember I said at the very outset that this message of love is not this morning God's love for you, as true as that is and as needful as it is. I said the message of love is you and I showing that love to one another. So how do we do that? How do we as followers of Christ show the love of God through our lives as we interact with one another? Well, it is going to take effort. Love is an action word. It is not merely a feeling. It is not merely an emotion. And it is certainly not just a sentiment. You know the old saying, actions speak louder than words. And that is exactly what John is saying. 
What people need is not necessarily our willingness to die for them. What they need is our desire to help them. And that's exactly what John says. We see a picture of this in the early portions of the book of Acts, when the church is just being formed. We see that the body is willingly and voluntarily selling those possessions that belong to each of them. And then they are distributing that to those who have need in the community of faith. Again, there is nothing wrong with meeting community needs, but we are talking specifically about meeting the needs within the body of Christ. And so the question becomes, in these strange times in which we live, what can we do as an effort of love to help those in need? How can we show people our love for them when we can't even be around them? Well, first of all, John reminds us that we must recognize the need. He says, if you see someone in need, which tells us that before we can meet a need, and this is obvious, before we can meet a need, we must recognize that that need exists. Now, there are often extremes in this, as there are in so many other areas of life. That is, there are a few people who are always more than ready to share their needs with anyone who would listen. But most of us fall into the latter category, and that is, we are very reluctant to share our needs with others. We are individualistic and want to make it on our own. And so we find it difficult to humble ourselves and admit to others that we do have some need. And that may be what we need to do in this time. We may, be, we may need to be the one who, who humbles ourselves and acknowledge that there is a need. But frankly, it's not hard to see the needs at this particular moment in our history. We know that there are people who are losing their jobs, or at least some hours. And while the financial hit may be temporary, it is still painful. Others are struggling under the load of loneliness or depression because they are cooped up at home. And so in these days in which we live, the needs, really, to be honest, are all around us. So having seen the need, then what, we, what do we do? Well, obviously, one of the things we can do is we can give money or resources to help the people who are in need. That is clearly what John is referring to here. He is using an image of slamming the door in someone's face. And he's telling us, do not slam your hearts. Do not close your hearts when you see others who are in need. And so you can help people out directly. You can do it through the church. Or you can do it through many of the governmental agencies that are providing support during this time of need. In fact, over the last three weeks, about the only event that's gone on here at the church is this past Tuesday, we did go forward with our food pantry. We did it a little bit differently than we normally do. We had the folks simply drive into our parking lot, we took their names down, and we handed them a bag of groceries that was already pre-prepared and gave it to them. In the past, we've had them shop for themselves, but we no longer did it that way this month because of all that is going on. And of course, this is just one example of many groups or many organizations that are helping out at this time. And you can certainly do this personally, one-on-one, -on -one, without any publicity or fanfare. You may remember that we started this year with a campaign that's called Who's Your One? 
That campaign was a spiritual command, urging you to find someone that you believe is not a believer and then pray for them and seek to reach out to them. And you can still do that in this time. But in a similar manner, you may know someone who has some physical needs. And you don't have to go through a government organization. You don't even have to go through the church. You can personally strive to meet those needs without anyone else knowing it. I was encouraged this week by a phone call I received from one of our members who wanted to know what we as a church do in the area of benevolence, that is trying to help those who have physical needs. But he also went on to say that God had already laid another church member on his heart. And he and his wife had already decided that they were going to help this other church member through this particular time of crisis. And that's exactly what I'm talking about here. Of course, it doesn't have to be money or food. It may be a neighbor who is just lonely and needs someone to check on them. And while we're certainly not encouraging you to make visits to other homes, you can make phone calls or offer to run, er offer to run errands for those who are in the high-risk categories. And such phone calls are not great efforts on our part. They're minimal as far as time and energy goes, but they can make a big difference in someone else's morale. Certainly, we can be praying for one another. And that is not a last-ditch effort, something we do when we don't know what else to do. We're bringing the needs of other people before God, who is the one who has promised to supply us all of our needs, while at the same time, we are being cognizant of the fact that God might use us to meet those needs. All of these are just examples. There are countless other ways to help. But what we can't do is do nothing. James echoes what John says here. He warns us about seeing someone who lacks clothing or food and simply saying to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that they needed for their body. He then draws the conclusion, and you'll find this in James chapter 2, he draws the conclusion that that kind of faith that is not coupled with works, is dead faith. And that's the same conclusion that John is coming to here. Look again at verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Mere words are not going to get the job done. Mere words are not going to give the evidence that we genuinely have a relationship with Christ. Yes, the effort might take time, and it certainly is going to be costly. But love is always meant to be expressed. And so your response is twofold this morning. Number one, I want to ask you again, during this holy week, I want to urge you to gaze upon the love of God. That love of God that is seen primarily in Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. And then secondly, having seen that love, that we are to be the message of love for others, that we are to express that love to one another, demonstrating to them and for them that the love of God has made a difference in our lives, going beyond mere words and expressing that in some tangible way. Otherwise, John says, not only is there no love in you, but there is no spiritual life either. 
spiritual life manifests itself in loving one another. Be that message of love to someone this week. Let me pray. Father, we thank You again for the clarity with which Your Holy Spirit spoke through John. Cutting through the the excuses that we often give and making it very clear that when we know the love of God, we will love one another within the body of Christ. And so I pray that You would help us this Holy Week, this Holy Week unlike any other Holy Week we've ever been through, that You would help us to gaze upon Calvary and see there the love of God in Christ on display for us. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And that is what Jesus has done for us. And having seen that, I pray that You would help us to express that in how we love one another. Give us opportunities this week to be the message of love to someone else. Whether that's specifically in the body of Christ as we've talked about this morning, or whether that's our who's your one, that neighbor or friend who does not know you and may be more open to spiritual conversations during these troubling times. May we be the message of love that they need to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you again for tuning in and listening and invite you back next week as unfortunately it looks like we'll be celebrating Easter apart and yet together through technology.